Welcome to my podcast. Each episode goes for around 20 minutes. I talk on a wide range of subjects. Philosophy, psychology, education, thinking techniques, spirituality and so on. Leave any comments. There's details available at the end of this podcast. So you can leave comments on Podbean, Spotify or Apple Music. Depends on where you heard this. Thank you. Today I'm going to kick this off by talking about anxiety and depression. Now, anxiety and depression are rife in the Western world. Probably about a third of people in Australia, the UK and the US are suffering various forms of anxiety and depression. In one sense, anxiety and depression are both have the same root, and that is overthinking. As a general rule, I say that people who think too much about the past start to become depressed because you go back into how things were better in the past, how all those mistakes you've made, they come back and what an idiot you've made of yourself and what a mess you've made of your life. And this forms depression or a particular type of depression. People whose mind wanders off into the future become anxious. Everything has to be worked out. Everything has to be planned. You have to let go of that. You see, the past is gone. There's nothing you can do that will change it. We do have to consider the past in order to learn by it. But when people go back into the past, it's not about learning. It's almost as if by replaying the same sequence over and over again, you're somehow going to change what happened. Or there's going to be a magic key that's suddenly going to appear and it's going to unlock it all and everything's going to become clear. It doesn't exist. When people have a breakup in a relationship, they go over and over the relationship as if somehow it's going to unlock it. It's an emotional replaying in the mind. You can't solve an emotional problem by intellectual or rational means. You have to, the key to solving an emotional problem is time and distance. You have to let it go. You can't change the past. Similarly, the future won't happen in the way you think it will. It never does. All those plans you made, all those things you anticipated, never work out in exactly the way you think. There's an exercise I do which works very well for people who are anxious. And when I do it with people who actually don't suffer from anxiety, they don't understand why it's even an issue. And the exercise is this. I get the client to sit down in the chair and become aware of how they're sitting. Maybe they've got their legs crossed or they're sitting with their feet firmly planted on the floor or their hands are on the arms of the chair or maybe their hands are crossed and so on. Become very acutely aware of how they're sitting. And across the room I put a pen. And the exercise is they have to get out the chair, pick the pen up and sit down again. But before they do that, 
they have to work out every aspect of how they're going to do it. Are they going to put their weight on their left foot to start or their right foot to start? How are they going to coordinate their body when they come out of the chair? And this is actually quite a complex process. If you cast your mind to it, how you actually get out of a chair or sit down in a chair, the coordination between your eyes, your body, the chair, how you feel, your muscle coordination is incredible when you think about it. So they have to be aware of how they're going to move forward across the room. Are they going to take one step, two steps? Are they going to lean over? Which hand are they going to pick the pen up? Are they going to turn round to go back or are they just going to go backwards? How are they going to drop themselves down into the chair and so on? Now when I do this with people who suffer from anxiety they become paralysed, that nothing happens and uh, they suddenly say well just wait, I've just got to work it all out. Now, of course you know they're going to sit there for a day, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. Uh, eventually I'll say look just pick the pen up and sit down just to break that impasse. People who don't suffer from anxiety, they, they just don't understand what the issue is. Uh, they say, well, it's quite easier to just get out of the, the chair and do it. But that problem of overthinking and trying to work everything else out is an exaggeration of what the anxious person is doing in their everyday life. It's almost like they're trying to preempt everything. We have to let go. We have to just do now, the schools are worse for this, our education system, I'm going to be returning to this quite a few times in various different ways about how our education system corrupts our kids, it sets them off in the wrong direction. Most of what we call education is not really education, it's indoctrination. We pump facts into kids we, and we get them to regurgitate them. We don't teach them how to think. Well, because the teachers don't know how to think, they can't pass it on to the kids. There is what we call relational and instrumental understanding. Now, a relational understanding is where we understand, we can step back from the process, we can get an overview of what's happening. An instrumental understanding is where we understand a process but we don't understand the big picture. When I was in uh, IT, uh, I used to make a point of avoiding anybody, you know, when we were employing people, avoiding anybody who had done the Microsoft courses um, because they teach purely in an instrumental way. When this happens, you go to this program, you open this, you click here, you look for this, you do this, you do that. They had no understanding, typically they had no understanding of what they were actually doing. They had no understanding of the, uh, the, the, of the system. And in the, uh, the article which I wrote, which is actually on Medium, uh, it goes back to an essay in about 1974 by a professor of mathematics or as a teacher of mathematics. And he pointed out that uh, this is the degree of instrumental or rational underst relational understanding is really nothing to do with their qualifications. You can get people with MSCs or PhDs who still really only have a, an instrumental understanding. And you get people who are really uneducated in the conventional sense who have a very good overview of maths. And 
the person who understands the process but doesn't understand the background will might give an exercise to the kid. Let's say it's a division, long division exercise, and the kid comes back with a long with the wrong answer, and the teacher says, "No, it's the wrong answer." That's it. The person with the relational understanding who understands the whole system might look at the answer and say, ah, yes, well, it's the wrong answer, but I can see why you got that. And let's go back and have a look at what you actually did here. And they might also understand other methods of doing, or they should understand other methods of doing long division. There's some uh, Indian techniques, which are quite, you can look them up on YouTube. They're quite amazing, different ways, totally different ways of doing long division or doing square root calculations that we do in the West. Now, you imagine that you go to a course on um, learning to type. And um, when people type properly, they get a feeling, they get muscle memory. Um, in fact, sometimes, I know I'm like this, I probably couldn't tell you offhand where a particular letter is on the keyboard. I could sort of picture it. But it would be sl it would be a slow process. But when I'm typing, I can type fast. My fingers know where to go. But could you imagine doing a course in learning to type? And they said, ah, yes, but before you press any key on the keyboard, you have to show your workings. You have to show why you chose that key. Of course, what you're going to do is stymie. You're actually going to style me the, the very process that you should be teaching, which is muscle memory. But that's what we do when we teach maths. Now, the reason why this is relevant to depression and anxiety is because this is what we do with our process. We overthink it. We don't rely on the mind's natural ability to think, our mind's natural ability to solve problems. It's there, it's built into us. We have to learn to trust it. You know, there's two approaches, and this is a theme which I'm going to come back to very much. There is what we call, or what I call, left and right brain thinking. The left side of the brain deals with what you might call everything to do with space and time, which many people think is everything, but it's not. That process of getting out of the chair that we talked about, this process of pattern recognition, when we look at something, we see it's a table or a chair. The processes of thought that go through our mind, and one of the exercises I give people, and this is worth doing, is we take a number from zero to ten, and I say to people, okay, this is an indication of how busy your mind is. Zero, if you can imagine this, is a completely still mind, crystal clear with no thoughts. Ten is a mind that's jammed with thoughts. You, you couldn't get another thought in there. So I say, where are you on this scale? Most people that come and see me, they're probably about seven, eight, nine, or ten. And sometimes when people have trouble sleeping and they're lying in bed, the mind ramps up to its maximum. And I say it's like having a, a large V8 car in the garage and it's revving away and it's using a lot of fuel and it's giving off a lot of exhaust, but it's not going anywhere. This is like people when they're lying in bed. The mind, free from any constraints of what it's got to do during the day, 
is left to go flat out and it goes generally into the past or the future and it causes anxiety and depression and that constant going over the mind prevents from sleeping. There are some exercises you can do. I mean, one of them is to, as soon as you get a thought, you write it on a piece of paper and you put it back in a drawer by your bed. And um, you, as soon as that thought pops up again, you can just say, well, that's already dealt with. Now, this works for some people. It doesn't work for others. There's meditation exercises, and I highly recommend meditation. But it all gets back to this busy mind, this left side of the brain that's thinking, calculating, planning, thinking about what you did earlier, what you're going to do afterwards, and so on and so on. We live in a left-brain society. Our education system's left-brain. Now, I'm going to return to this in a later podcast because there's some very interesting work done by some neurologists in this area. But to get back to how this relates to anxiety and depression is the right side of the brain is, as it were, the part of the brain that's in the moment, the awareness of the moment. They're they're almost like distinct entities. We perceive in the moment and out of that perception we form patterns there's um, two something called autism which many people will be familiar with and there's something called Asperger's now there used to be this view that there was an autistic spectrum and we still talk about the spectrum the spectrum implies uh, something that's got the one end normal people. Um, I don't know whether this applies to you. I hope it applies to me in one sense. <laughs> in the other sense, I wouldn't like to be normal. And at the other end, we get the extreme autistic. You know, the kid who sits there and rocks and has no language skills and then autism and so on, are described as being on the spectrum. Well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. A lot of autistic people are very good, they have very good language skills, they have very good with machines, and in many ways their performance in certain areas outperforms that of normal people, which doesn't really make you think of a spectrum, because in other ways they're quite deficient in social skills and so on. Now, when we understand this idea of left and right brain thinking, we can see how this relates. Autism and Asperger's are related, but are different. Now, when we get overemphasized on that left side of the brain, which most people to a great or lesser extent are, we get stuck or we can get stuck into patterns and we become unable to produce new patterns. Now, the thing about the Asperger's individuals is that if you take them out of their routine in terms of time, in other words, you do things at different times, or in terms of space, you take them to places that they're not familiar with, they can get extremely agitated because they find it difficult or they're unable to produce new patterns to deal with that situation. Now, the conventional autistic, on the other hand, is stuck in the right brain. They are unable to produce patterns. 
So when they listen to sounds, for instance, instead of hearing voices and background noises and music and so on, it's just a cacophony of sounds. They don't produce patterns, and because they don't produce patterns, they don't learn how to speak. This is extreme. So they're related disorders, but they're not the same. And there is actually a theory I developed, because there are certain senses are left-brain senses, and certain senses are more typically right-brain senses. For instance, it's impossible for most people to look at a, a chair or something like that and not see a chair. What you're actually perceiving is colours and shades. Um, from those colours and shades, we make patterns. It's impossible to not see the pattern when you look at something. Uh, with sounds, it's difficult to hear uh, somebody talking and not hear the, uh, understand what they're saying or listen to the voice. Uh, it's more easy with uh, sounds. The sound sort of crosses that boundary between the left and right brain and, and in music that comes to a fore. As an aside, when you get a lot of activity over the corpus callosum, which is what joins the left and right brain sides of the brain, you can get moments of ecstasy, which is why music can produce that ecstasy. Certain um, senses typically, um, the sense of touch for most people, sense of taste and, and smell for most people, are right brain senses in the sense that we don't make patterns out of them. You might, if you're a, a, a chef or a gourmet, you might very much make patterns out of what you're eating and sense of taste, and you say, oh yes, this has got this such and such a... Um, uh, you know, made them such and such ingredients, or wine tasters can can do this. They discern the subtleties in the taste and they analyze it. That is, they use the left brain. But for most people, we just the experience in itself is what we go for. And similarly, with sense of touch, a blind person uses a sense of touch in order to discern the world. But most people who are sighted don't do that. So I had a, a theory that the sense of smell for most people, because it's a right brain sense, uh, people with Asperger's would be unable to discern senses of smell. Now I won't go into the details because I'm going to do that later on in a different podcast. But I've tried this and, it, and it's generally true. And um, strangely, Macquarie University discovered that psychopaths have this same um, issue with senses of smell but they didn't know why it was well I, I know why it is because I came at it from that direction I said if my theory is true then that they should have this uh, inability and psychopathy and Asperger's are related and I've got to be very careful here because I don't want to imply that um, Asperger's people become psychopaths but there is a relationship between the two and it's to do with this over-emphasis on the left side of the brain. In the case of psychopaths, they're cut off from that emotional centre. Um, so it's slightly, slightly different, but there's the same, uh, same emphasis there. So with, with um, anxiety and depression, we have to move away from the over-analyzing on the left side of the brain and move into the right side of the brain. And meditation techniques help us to do this. Good meditation 
is about awareness. It's called nowadays mindfulness. They've given this a name and it's very powerful when done properly. Mindfulness is a bit of a cult word, which is why I've avoided it up till now. Um, but in essence, it's about moving from the analysing left side of the brain to the experiencing right side of the brain, which is why an emphasis on breathing is a very good gateway to the right side of the brain. Thank you for listening. You can leave comments on my Podbeam page. You can email me, phil at braham.net. You can visit my website, podcasts.braham.net. And I hope to hear back from you. Thank you. <laughs>